Father, again, we thank you that we know your word, that it gives us uh, light and direction, that in spite of whatever the circumstances are in our lives, we know that there is certain truth that is never shaken. And as long as we keep our minds focused on that, we can have stability and peace, tranquility and contentment in our souls. Father, now as we open your word to examine it tonight, we pray the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us and would make these things applicable to each one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles this evening to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James, beginning in verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a, a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now this is I think one of the most profound passages in Scripture, and there's a tremendous amount that is just touched on in these verses. So it's going to take us several weeks to work our way through these eight verses. As I said on uh, Sunday morning, one of, the, one of my strategies is that on Wednesday night we're going to dig a little deeper into the Scriptures than we are on either, uh, either time on Sunday morning. Not that those are going to be particularly superficial times, but we're going to... Um, Get a little more in depth on, on Wednesday night. Last week we looked at the introductory verse, the salutation of the epistle, and we saw that it was written by James, a man who is the half-brother of the Lord, but he does not say that he is the Lord's half-brother. He doesn't pull rank. In fact, he shows and reveals his humility that he is a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he addresses himself to Jews who are scattered abroad. And one of the things that we must be reminded here is that this is the earliest of the epistles, probably written somewhere around 43 A.D., 44 A.D., something like that. And is written to, at that time, the church was primarily Jewish in nature. It really hadn't come to a point yet where any of the mystery doctrine of the church age had been revealed. And so the... Um, the character of the church was still primarily Jewish. He begins right out of the chute in verse 2 with a, with a command. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces in endurance. The verse begins with that command, count it all joy. Now, I don't know about you, but every now and then when you're going through life and you have a difficult situation, somebody reminds you of this verse, and just with that phrase, count it all joy, because you're going through something tough. But let me tell you what is not obvious at first glance here. And that is that this is not a command to an immature believer. 
This is not something a believer in spiritual diapers is going to be able to do. And you see that for a number of hints in this passage, but if you look at it, the command is considered all joy, but there is a circumstantial participle which begins verse 3, which describes the way in which you're able to fulfill the command of verse 2. That is that you know something. You know some doctrine. In order to fulfill the command of verse 2, there has to be a certain amount of doctrine that's resident in your soul that you're ready to put on the on the line and use immediately when you get into a tough situation. So this is not the kind of thing that um, a brand new believer is going to be able to do because he doesn't have much doctrine in his soul. So in order to be able to fulfill this mandate of verse 2, we have to learn a few things, and that's what we're going to focus on this evening. The verse begins with a command in the Greek. It's an aorist middle imperative of the verb hegeomai. I'll write my Greek better. Hegeomai. Starts off with a rough breathing, so it's H-E-G-E-O-M-A-I. Now, one of the first things we always have to do when we study the Word is to exegete through the verse or verses that we're going to be looking at. That means we're going to take it apart uh, grammatically and syntactically. Grammar has to do with each individual word and what its part of speech is. Whether, what kind of verb it is, what kind of noun it is. Syntax has to do with the relationship of the nouns and verbs together and the clauses because these are very important. A lot of people sometimes get the idea we don't want to get into that kind of detail, but Jesus based several of his arguments, even on his deity, on very sophisticated, simple, um, grammatical uh, points. So we are given that example, and we can do the same. Now, hegeomai means to lead, to think, to consider, to regard, and to esteem. This is one of several Greek synonyms that are used for thought, for the activity of the mentality of the soul. And what's important in times of adversity, in times of testing, is thought, not emotion. What matters is what you think not how you feel in that situation. We live in an age today that's been shaped so much by the thinking of Freud and psychotherapy that the average person on the street is so Freudian in his thinking and in his responses, that, but he's never heard of Freud. And the same is true for all of us. In fact, Bruce Shelley, who's a professor of church history at Denver Seminary, and his... Um, uh, historians tend to periodize things. In other words, they'll say from this year to this year, and they'll put a label on it. And the, the post-1960 period is called the, the uh, therapeutic age. Because that is one of the primary characterizations of our era, is we're focused on the self, on psychotherapy and on counseling. And we're very self-absorbed in our culture. So the emphasis in, in a therapeutic age is to place the emphasis on feelings. Not what you think about a situation, but on how do you feel about your situation. I should have, I should have used that joke I got the other day in an email, the one about a, a, arithmetic, how arithmetic was taught, how algebra or math was taught in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And by the time you get to the 90s, it's, it, this whole thing originally starts off with, I think it was a, it was a logging problem that um, had to do with uh, they, they made so much uh, 
Uh, it cost them so much money to log a, a, a certain number of acres, and uh, so how much profit they made after they sold off the logs, they made X amount of dollars. How much profit was it? And by the time it gets to the 90s, it's Jim has a logging operation. How do you feel about that? <laughs> he logged five, 500 uh, acres a, a month last year. How, how does that make you feel? Uh, and he made this much money, and how does that make you feel? So it all comes down to, to, to subjectivism. So, uh, under, but under emotion, the issue so often is just the avoidance of responsibility in any kind of crisis or test and uh, to focus on irresponsibility. So the opposite is true of Scripture. The command here when you encounter various trials is to think about things. It's to disengage the emotions and to put the emphasis on thinking. In fact, this, this verb, hegeomai, has a background in accounting, and it has to do with adding up the figures and coming to a conclusion. So when you hit a situation in life when you're encountering, encountering difficulty and adversity, you're to add it up, and the result is a certain mental attitude. Now, when we look at a verb, any verb in, in Greek, it's going to have a tense, a mood, and a voice. And all of this is relevant. The tense here is aorist. It's an aorist imperative. And that basically means that the aorist tense looks at the entire action. It's sort of a summary command. Do this. It's not looking at it in terms of time. It's not looking at it in terms of start doing something you're not doing. It's not looking at something in terms of continuation like the present tense, continue to do this. It's just simply get issuing a summary command to do this. This should always characterize your life and your thinking. It's a, in terms of the voice, it's a middle passive in form, but in Greek they call it a deponent verb because in the development of the language the active form died out, so it's a middle or passive form, but it still has an active meaning. And in an active verb, the subject of the verb performs the action. For example, you have a sentence, John hit the ball. Hit is an active verb. The subject performs the action. The subject of the sentence is John. Well, basic grammar for those of you who who might have forgotten some of these things since uh, fourth or fifth grade or whenever you last went over it. Um, in an active, active um, verb, the subject performs the action. So the point here is that you, the believer, are the only one who can perform this action. No one else can do it for you. It's an emphasis on your volitional choice, that if you are going to consider it joy, if you are going to share the happiness of God, then that is your volition. It's a volitional decision. Happiness is not based on circumstances, but on your mental attitude, which is determined by whatever doctrine you have in your soul. So that tells us three basic principles, just to remember. Principle number one, to the degree that you base your happiness on people, circumstances, or events, to that degree you are a slave to those people, circumstances, or events. To the degree that you base your happiness on people, circumstances, and events, to that degree you are enslaved by those things. If you say, I have to have $100,000 a year to be happy, 
And as long as you don't have $100,000, as long as that, the control of that $100,000 is in somebody else's hands, you're, you're in bondage. You will never be happy. You're saying your emotions are totally dependent on somebody else and something else that's outside of your control. Principle number two. When you base your happiness on people, circumstances, or events, these are the details of life. You make someone else or something else in charge of your emotional well-being. When you base your happiness on people, circumstances, or events, these are the details of life. You make someone else or something else in charge of your emotional well-being. As soon as you say, I have to have X, in order to be happy, you're saying X is in charge of my happiness. I'm going to turn everything over to them. Point number three, or principle number three. If you base your happiness on the details of life, then you will guarantee that you're going to be miserable and an absolute failure in the spiritual life. As long as you think that you have to have something, be with somebody, do something, have a certain job, make a certain income, live a certain way live a certain place, have a certain lifestyle, whatever it may be, have a certain style of clothes, whatever it may be, as long as you say that that determines your happiness, then you're going to guarantee for yourself a life of misery and you're going to be a failure in the spiritual life. So we have a verb here that's in the aorist tense. It's a summary command to consider something all joy. is a command, which brings us to the mood. It's an imperative. As a command... We know that it's addressed to the mentality of the soul and not the emotions. Because the emotions cannot respond to a command, only the mentality. So this is the very first imperative in the epistle. We come right out of the salutation and straight into a mandate. Imperatives are commands. Sometimes it might be an imperative of request. Sometimes it might be an imperative of suggestion. Something like that, but not here. This is not an option. This is a mandate related to the operation of the plan of God in your life and something that's necessary for your spiritual life. If you can't get a handle on this principle, you will never grow as a believer. You've got to get a handle on this because the first time you start encountering any kind of difficulty in the Christian life, and don't you just hate it when you say people, you want to have all the problems in your life solved and you need to be a believer. Let me tell you. If you want to have all the problems in life, that's when you become a believer. Because as soon as you become a believer, you enter the angelic conflict. And in the church age, we're in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. And you just get a big target on your back. And Satan is just looking for you to try to knock you off your horse and get you completely distracted from living the spiritual life. So these imperatives are, are vital if you're going to grow to spiritual maturity. Failure to implement divine mandates means that at, at that moment, as soon as you fail to do this, you're outside the plan of God. You're living in carnality and the sin nature is in control of your life. Recovery is possible, though. Just because you blow at one time doesn't mean you can't immediately get up and start moving again. Recovery is possible. It's using 1 John 1, 9. You immediately uh, turn to God, admit your sin, and move on. Forget what's behind you. That's one of the biggest problems that people have is they get caught up, I failed, I blew it, and then they start getting into guilt. And guilt's another sin. They start trying to somehow impress God with how guilty they feel. They go, I'm really sorry I did that. Well, it doesn't matter what you, you think about that sin or how sorry you are about it. 
What matters is that that sin, whatever it was, no matter how heinous it might have been, no matter how much it shocked you, no matter how much it shocked other people, no matter what, how devastating its consequences were on people around you, the reality is that Jesus Christ paid for that sin on the cross, and in terms of your spiritual life, you can get up and get moving again. Now, you may still have to go through some divine discipline, and there still may be some hellacious consequences as a result of your sinful choices. But now that suffering is going to be converted into blessing if you continue to stay in fellowship and apply doctrine and grow. So just six points then in dealing with the whole issue of considering it, that is testing, all joy. Number one, emotions cannot be commanded, only the mentality. Therefore, the mind must be in control in order to implement this command. The problem with so many people is as soon as the pressure comes, comes in, they immediately quit thinking and start emoting. They start to panic. They start to get jittery. They start to cave into all sorts of emotional sins like anger and bitterness and resentment. And all these things then begin to dominate their soul and they're out of fellowship and they're going to fail the whole test as soon as they let the sin nature gain control. Emotions cannot be commanded, only the mentality. Therefore, the mind must be in control in order to implement this command. Secondly, if you get into a test or adversity, you can respond one of two ways. You have an option. It's your choice. Number one, you can react emotionally and go into a whole emotional realm of sins with anger, bitterness, frustration, resentment, or you can, and you can just push the panic button, or you can respond by applying the doctrine that's in your soul. You've got two choices, a reaction with emotional sin or applied doctrine. Any test gives you those same two options. Point number three, when you react emotionally, you're being subjective. As soon as you react emotionally, your focus is on me. You start whining and mewing about how terrible it is and how bad the situation is and why me, and you deserve more, and the focus is self-absorption. And as soon as you get into self-absorption, you're immediately into some form of arrogance. And arrogance can be incredibly subtle. But as soon as you get into arrogance, you're just greasing the skids for a downhill slide into deeper and deeper carnality. When you react emotionally, you're being subjective, you're focusing on self, and you're letting circumstances control you. You're saying, my happiness and my stability is all dependent upon my circumstance. And now my circumstances aren't the way I want them to be, so I'm going to whine and cry about it. In fact, one of the most convicting scriptures is in Philippians chapter 3. It says, do all things without murmuring or complaining, or Philippians chapter 2. Now think about that a minute. You know, one of the real joys in life is when you're going through a hard time is being able to complain about it. Right? And the scripture says we're not to complain about it, so that just takes... I mean, how can you count it joy if you can't complain a little bit? When you react emotionally, you're being subjective, you're focusing on yourself and letting the circumstances control you. As long as you're being emotional, you're not going to be able to think. You cannot be objective, and you cannot apply doctrine. Four, when you react to adversity with emotion, that means the sin nature is in control, and you're beginning down the path to spiritual failure. 
When you react to adversity with emotion, the sin nature is immediately in control and you're beginning to go down the path to spiritual failure. Five, the only solution to gain control of the emotions is through Bible doctrine. Now that doesn't mean that when you go out there and you get involved in some kind of a test, like somebody kicking you in the shin, that you're not going to respond with some kind of an emotion. We're not robots. We have emotion. Emotions are the responders of our soul. But it's whether or not you choose to respond and give in to emotional sinning that's the issue. If I walked out there and kicked Jim in the shin, he's going to hurt. Well, you go through a certain, certain kinds of trials, you're going to hurt. You're going to have that emotional response. But you don't give in to the anger. You don't give in to the resentment, to the bitterness. You go down the path of carnality. The only solution to gain control of the emotions when you hit that crisis is to start thinking on the basis of doctrine. As soon as you start thinking on doctrine, objectivity is going to be restored, your emotions are going to begin to be stabilized, and you can move forward towards success in the Christian life and handling that test in a way that glorifies God. Six, the imperative mood here means that the issue is your volition. See, that's not a message people want to hear today. The message people want to hear today is it's the environment's fault. It's circumstances. It's my parents. It's, it's the boss at work. It, it, it's just the system. But what Scripture says, it's not the system. It's not your boss at work. It's not your parents. It's you. It's how you respond, how you choose to respond to whatever circumstances come your way. The imperative mood here emphasizes volition as the issue, not environment. In fact, that's one of the one of the key principles that's going to be demonstrated in the millennium. There's going to be perfect environment on the earth with a perfect government, perfect administration, and perfect ruler. And people are going to be born with sin natures, and they're going to choose to sin and choose to rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ who's going to be ruling and reigning personally from the throne of David in Jerusalem during that time, and they're just going to be miserable failures because of their volition. And that's just once again going to emphasize that environment has nothing to do with it. Adam and Eve were in perfect environment in the Garden of Eden, and yet they chose to sin. Why are we in the mess we're in? Because of volition. The issue is not environment. It never has been environment. It's always been individual volition. And as long as we live in a country that continues to run around trying to change environments and resolve problems, we're always going to be facing failure. The issue is personal responsibility and personal volition. So the main clause here begins, Consider, count, think it all joy, my brethren. Now before we go on in the rest of this verse, we have to connect the main verb, hegeomai, with the participle in verse 3. How, how can we count it joy? Verse 3, we know something. Knowing is gnosko. It is the present active participle of the Greek verb gnosko, which is G-I-N-O-S-K-O. means to know to perceive, to come to understand. All of this is part of the meaning of gnosko. 
How are you able to count it? Because you know something. It is a present active participle, circumstantial participle. It could be a circumstantial of cause, meaning consider it all joy because you know something. Or it could be a participle of means. It probably contains both ideas. Consider or think it all joy by means of knowing that the test of your faith produces endurance. A participle of means tells you how you do something. tells you the reason why you're able to do something. That would be more of a causal idea. Either one of those are true. You know, um, in, in Greek, grammar doesn't solve everything. Now, a lot of people get the impression that if you go to seminary, you take Greek, and you learn Greek, and you start reading the New Testament in Greek, it's just going to resolve all the problems, all the theological difficulties. And most first-year Greek students are disabused of that very rapidly. When you come to a clause like this, and you have a circumstantial participle, there's about ten different nuances to a circumstantial participle. And you, the interpreter, have to look at that as a pastor-teacher and decide what it is. And sometimes, you know, a word or a phrase is used and it contains three or four different ideas. So here we have one that it could be causal or it could be means, but both are true. How do you consider it all joy? Because you know something. How do you consider it all joy? By means of knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is you're able to fulfill the command because of doctrine in your soul. You know a certain amount of doctrine, and specifically in this case, you know something about the doctrine of suffering. You know something about the role that God has for suffering in the believer's life. So the believer is able to face suffering because he has doctrine in his soul. He knows something, and what he knows is encapsulated in that next phrase. He knows that the testing of your faith, and this word for testing is a dokimazo, which has to do with positive evaluation. It's not testing to find out what you don't know. It's testing to show the quality of what you do know. So as, as you learn doctrine and as you begin to grow, God the Father is going to bring testing in, into your life in order to give you the opportunity to apply that doctrine so that you can then grow. It's going to speed up that, that growth process. So every time you get into a test, you look at it as an opportunity to accelerate your spiritual growth. Now, doesn't that give you a great cause for joy? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, persistence, perseverance in the spiritual life. Going to Bible class when you'd rather stay home and watch TV just because you're tired. Going to Bible class because you would, you would rather work a little longer to get the job done. Going to Bible class because... Uh, or staying home from going to Bible class instead of taking your kids to, to sports or to music or something because that's good for them. And those are good things, but the issue is persistence in what you know to be most valuable. And sometimes it's not a choice between something that's good and something that's bad. It's a choice between something that's good and something that's better and where your priorities are. And a priority for the believer is that I can't make it through life without doctrine. So I have to be there every single time the doors are open so I can get doctrine. And it's not just an academic game. That's what we're going to learn in the rest of this chapter. It is, I'm there to learn doctrine, to transform my soul, so that whatever happens, I can handle it in a way that glorifies God and builds strength into my soul so that I can endure it and show and have true.
true stability and joy. Because the option is clear down in verse verse 8. You're either handling it with doctrine where you're stable, or the result is you're a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. Not just some of them, but all of them. The, issues, the choice is clear. It's either handle it with, with what's in your soul, with doctrine, and have stability, or handle it emotionally and be unstable. There's no third option. Now let's go back to verse 2 and complete the exegesis of that verse before we get too far afield. Count it all joy, my brethren. Now here we get to a technical phrase for believers right here. My brethren. We are all brothers in Christ because we're all members of the royal family of God. Now some people get the crazy notion that if if you're a human being, you're a child of God. I don't know where they get that crazy idea. It's part of liberal theology. But in John chapter 8, when Jesus is confronting the Pharisees, he says, You're of your father the devil. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them, those who received him, those who accept Christ as their Savior by faith alone and Christ alone, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to be called the sons of God. Only when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ are you immediately adopted into the family of God. And you become a son, a technos. You become a son of God. And as a son, a huios, also you have tremendous number of blessings and assets that belong to you as a child of God. And every single one of us then are in the family of God. And you can't lose that. Once you're in the family of God, God doesn't kick you out. Once you're in that family, nothing you do can ever change that. Because you're not the one who performed the adoption. God is. The moment you trust in Christ as your Savior, you're adopted into the royal family. You become spiritual aristocracy. Spiritual aristocracy. You are a royal priesthood. You become a member of the royal family of God. And so the phrase, my brethren, tells us that James is addressing this epistle to fellow believers. So the issues that are going to be covered in this epistle are not issues related to becoming a believer, but issues related to the spiritual life. Eleven times in this epistle, you have the phrase, my brethren, which tells you something about its importance. In 1-2 here, in 116, 1-19, 2-1, 2-5, 2-14, 3-1, 3-10, 3-12, 5-12, and 5-19, James uses the phrase, my brethren. He's making a point. Anything that's repeated that often is to drive home a point that he's talking to fellow believers. And that's going to be crucial for interpreting this book. This is one of the most important books for addressing the whole issue of the gospel, that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And when we get into uh, chapter 2 and deal with that whole issue about faith and works, we're going to deal with some very intricate, tough issues. And they are some of the most important issues related to the gospel today and understanding faith and justification by faith alone and the whole Lordship salvation controversy and the issue with free grace and everything that goes with it. Today I got some email from a George Meisinger. George is the founder of a Schaefer Theological Seminary out in Southern California. And in fact, he's going to be here Labor Day for a conference over at North Sonington. And I'm hoping that we're going to be able to work some things out to where we can avail ourselves of that conference as well. I don't know why we should be in competition with one another over uh, things like this. I think we ought to uh, benefit one another 
in uh, our ministries. I mean, we there aren't that many churches out there that we can say that we have something in common with. And so I, I'm a firm believer in cooperation and benefiting and having a little blessing by association between congregations that are like-minded. But George is going to be here, and he would just... This was a letter addressed to a group of pastor, doctrinal pastors that were meeting in uh, Spokane, Washington recently for a conference. I don't know, uh, just a small pastor's conference. There apparently were several men who, who normally make it and couldn't be there. But the point was that, that the uh, Lordship Salvation Doctrine is just making headroads everywhere, inroads everywhere, and is getting into uh, all kinds of churches and and Glenn Carnegie mentioned two doctrinal churches he knew of that in the last uh, uh, several years that uh, Lordship Salvation had just uh, come in through the back door. And before they knew it, uh, they've got a pastor in this pulpit who's teaching Lordship Salvation. And uh, it's being promoted by uh, John MacArthur and his seminary, a, ma- a master's seminary out in Southern California. And these guys are just energetic, and they're going all over the country, and they're going into churches, and they're getting on the radio. And... Uh, Somebody once commented here that uh, there wasn't any Christian radio up here. What a tragedy that was. And I just said, praise God. Because the garbage that's on Christian radio today, you don't want people to get it. I mean, 99% of the airwaves in this country are controlled by the charismatics. And the almost all the other 1% are controlled by the lordship crowd. So why do you want people listening to Christian radio? It's all false doctrine. You know, it's better to deal with people and not have to unlearn all that garbage and just teach them the truth and to have them constantly being infiltrated by all this, this garbage that's dominating everything today, uh, especially screwing up salvation. We're going to see in Galatians that this is one of the greatest tragedies that anybody can get involved in. And Paul says they ought to be cursed and rot in hell for distorting the gospel. So we, we have to get into this whole issue of uh, lordship salvation in the second chapter and it, it's just crucial. Anyway, George's letter was that to the point that those of us in doctrinal churches need to have a vision for training pastors because we're, we're, we're not doing it. We're not passing the baton. And we need to have a good, strong seminary. We used to have one at Dallas, and we don't have that at Dallas anymore. Dallas has caved into Lordship Salvation. They've caved into all kinds of other pressures and psychotherapy and everything else the church growth movement and all kinds of things that have compromised their historical stance on dispensationalism and free grace. And we need a seminary that will train men for the pulpit ministry. You know the difficulty you had finding people, finding anybody who could come in and maintain. And this is going on again and again and again. I hear from people time and time again that there just aren't men out there who have a vision for a good, solid doctrinal teaching ministry. So we need to uh, find that out, and we also need to, uh, I think, find out what we can do in whatever way we can, prayer support at the very least, uh, Chaper Seminary. But it's crucial if the truth is going to survive. So um, James addresses this to fellow believers, to my brothers, my brethren, and then he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now the phrase when is the Greek verb hotan. H-O-T-A-N. And that is a temporal particle. Whenever. 
indicating that this can happen any time, probably when you least expect it, you're going to encounter some kind of a trial. Whenever you do, it's totally one day you may, one day you, you, you will. Whenever you encounter, trials come at any time. It never matters when it happens. It's usually a surprise. And it's usually the last thing we want to happen at that time. In this life, you must remember that you cannot escape suffering and adversity. A lot of people think, well, if you're a believer, you're, just, you're not going to have any problem. In this life, you can't, accept, you can't escape it. Job 5.7 says, For man is born for trouble, as sparks fly upward. In Job 14.1, Job says, Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. We can't avoid it. verb here when you encounter is peripipto and the aorist acted subjunctive and it means to encounter, to fall into, or run into. And the subjunctive voice emphasizes its potentiality. It could happen at any moment. Whenever you fall into, whenever you run into, whenever you come up against a variety of trials. And this is the Greek word poikilos. Poikilos it's sort of an onomatopoeic word, porculos. And it's where we get the English word, let me see, P-O-I-K-I-L-O-S, where we get the English for polka dot. It means a variety, a diversity, a whole range, a variety of kinds. In life, we face all kinds of trials, large trials, small trials. They last a short time. They last a long time. Some of the trials we face are simple. Some are complex. But in life, we face all kinds of trials or tests. And these tests are there to demonstrate what's in our soul. So in order to do this, we have to know some things, and we have to understand the biblical doctrine of suffering. So I want to give you uh, six points on, of introduction to why believers suffer. Now this is just introduction. We've got a long way to go and we may not get out of this for two or three weeks, but I think this is some of the most important doctrine that you can get a hold of that's going to transform your life when, in handling trial. Okay, introduction to suffering. Number one, there are different categories of suffering. Terminology we use, uh, desert, we talk about deserved suffering and undeserved suffering. We talk about suffering for blessing and suffering for cursing. That's the terminology. Deserved suffering, undeserved suffering, suffering for blessing, suffering for cursing. Point number two, deserved suffering. Why is there deserved suffering? We suffer because we're sinners and we make bad decisions. That's called the law of volitional responsibility. We reap what we sow. We suffer because we're sinners and we make bad decisions from a position of weakness. As long as we have a sin nature, we're going to make bad decisions from a position of weakness. And the result of that is we're going to suffer. God has built into the whole system of, of the universe not only physical laws, but moral laws and spiritual laws. And when we violate those, there's always going to be tragedy to follow. You can't avoid it. It may not happen that day. It may not happen the next day. We may think that we're getting away with certain sins 
week after week after week, but at the very least, they're having a damaging effect on our soul. As we take in the Word, that we recover from that, but over and over and over again, as we allow ourselves to get into carnality, it has a damaging effect on our souls, and there's always this um, cause and effect relationship between the bad decisions we make and the bad things we go with. The law of volitional responsibility, whatsoever a man sows, this he also reaps, as well as the law of divine discipline. Not only does God let bad things happen to us because we do stupid things and sinful things, but then God also disciplines us on top of that at times. So we have deserved suffering because we sin and we suffer the consequences, and number two, because we sin and God disciplines us. Point number three, undeserved suffering. We all know that we have a lot of undeserved suffering. Number one, we suffer because we are associated intimately and directly with other sinners. We're married to them. We're their children. We're their parents. We work with them. We drive down the highway with them. We are associated intimately and directly with sinners who make bad decisions from a position of weakness. And the consequences of their bad decisions sometimes splatter all over us. So we have undeserved suffering. This is suffering, also called suffering by association. We also suffer, in a broader sense, have undeserved suffering because we live in a fallen world. If our president makes a decision to commit us into an unjust war, and it's a stupid decision, that's going to affect every one of us, isn't it? Bring all kinds of undeserved and untold suffering into the lives of people. World War II, Adolf Hitler started a war. The Japanese decided to bomb Pearl Harbor. Millions of people died. Untold undeserved suffering because of the bad decisions, the sinful decisions of just a few people. So because we live in a fallen world, this is Satan's world, it's Satan's cosmic system. And if you're a believer living in Satan's cosmic system, you're a target. And Satan's job is to destroy your witness in the angelic conflict. And he's going to do everything he can to distract you from the goal of being a witness for God in the angelic conflict. So as long as we're living in a fallen world, we're going to go through undeserved suffering. You know what that means in today's parlance? That means every single one of us, believer or unbeliever, is a victim. So since we're all victims... We can't use that as an excuse. doesn't matter. Don't you just love it today? Everybody's a victim of something. Well, because we're all victims, it doesn't matter. You can't use that to avoid responsibility. We're all, we all face a myriad of negative consequences because of the bad decisions of other people. The issue is never what are the bad decisions of other people. The issue is how, what are the good decisions you're going to make in response to those situations. We're always going to be faced with them. We can't whine and cry about it. We suffer because we live in the cosmic system, and that's a reality. So the issue is, how are you going to respond? Four, when the believer is in fellowship with God and under the filling of the Holy Spirit, then all suffering is for blessing. When you're in fellowship with God, filled with the Holy Spirit, applying doctrine. All suffering is for blessing. And under the principle of James 1, 2 through 4, that's 
how you're going to advance in the Christian life. It doesn't come any other way. You're going to go from point A to point B in the spiritual life and advance, and it's going to be done through testing and passing testing by applying doctrine. Testing gives the believer the opportunity to apply doctrine that he has stored up in his soul and to grow spiritually. Testing gives you the opportunity to take what you learn in the classroom of the local church and go out in the real world and put it into practice. Point number five. When the believer is under the control of the Holy Spirit, or is under the control of sin nature and out of fellowship with God, then suffering is designed to discipline the believer, to get his attention, to change his mind. That's what the Bible means by repent. Repent is one of those words, one of those religious words that's so badly abused and misused and poorly understood. And it comes from the Greek word meta-noieo. M-E-T-A-N-O-I-E-O. This is from the Greek noun nous, which means to think. It has to do with the mind, the mentality. And meta means after or to change. So the basic thought of meta noeo is to change your mind. It's not an emotional word. It's a word that means to think, to change how you think about something. So when the Bible says to repent, it means to change your mind about something. So God brings divine discipline into your life when you're in carnality in order to get you to change your mind about your carnality and to use 1 John 1, 9 to confess your sins, acknowledge your sins to God the Father in the privacy of your soul and to get back in fellowship, regain the filling of the Holy Spirit, and move forward in the Christian life. Point number six, no matter what you've done, no matter how serious the suffering is, no matter how tragic the consequences, no matter how many people you've hurt in the process of screwing up your life and making these carnal decisions, no matter how devastating the sin, no matter how bad it is, no matter where you end up, as long as you're still alive, God has a plan for your life, and you can confess your sin, pick up, and keep moving. God will always forgive you on the basis of 1 John 1, 9 and the work of Christ, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And any divine discipline that's left over is either going to be, one, negated, God in His grace may decide to lift it, or if it continues, then it becomes suffering for blessing. And that just helps to accelerate your own spiritual growth. The suffering may be removed, but as long as you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it can be for your good and your spiritual growth. Now, as this passage indicates, we can't avoid adversity. Trouble is with us always. Now, whenever you have these problems and they hit you and you're just going through life and all of a sudden you're blindsided with some kind of adversity and some kind of a crisis, some kind of a situation, you have the option of whether or not you're going to convert that into stress. And the stress is used different ways. In common everyday parlance, we tend to think of any kind of adversity as stress. But there is a difference between adversity and stress. Outside pressure, and that's stress. So adversity is the outside pressure on the soul, and stress is the inside pressure. Adversity 
happens to all of us all the time. But stress is what you do to yourself. Stress is based on what you've got in your soul and whether you're choosing to be positive in applying doctrine or negative in handling it in emotion and in carnality. Remember, every one of us makes bad decisions. Every one of us goes through tests every day and fails. Now, I'm no better than anybody else. I may know more, but I'm just more accountable. I still fail just like anybody else. We all make bad decisions from a position of weakness, but God has provided the solutions through His Word so that we can handle any adversity without converting it into stress in the soul. The world is out there giving you all kinds of management seminars on how to manage stress in your life. Get up and exercise. Do this. Meditate. Take yoga. Whatever it is. And the bottom line is all they're saying is manage the stress. The Bible says you can avoid it completely. There's stress busters in Scripture, so you don't have to experience any stress. That doesn't mean you want to have go through the adversity. Well, you'll go through the adversity, but in your soul there will be inner peace, tranquility, happiness, and contentment and gratitude for the, for the test, whatever it may be. So we're going to start tonight with the doctrine of stress. We'll begin with the definition and description. Point number one, there are two kinds of pressures in life. One is overt pressure, which we're going to call adversity. Two kinds of pressure. The first is overt pressure, which we're going to call adversity. And two is the inner pressure of the soul, which is stress. Point number two. Adversity is the outside pressure of life, circumstances, and people. Stress is the inside pressure of the soul. Point number three. As outside pressures of life, there are two categories of adversity. Suffering from the law of volitional responsibility or divine discipline. The consequences from your bad decisions. Two, suffering for blessing, which is undeserved suffering in your fellowship, which accelerates your spiritual growth. Point three, once again, is outside pressures of, of life are two categories of adversity. Suffering from the law of volitional responsibility or divine discipline. This is suffering you bring on yourself because of your bad decisions. Or suffering for blessing, which is undeserved suffering, which accelerates your spiritual growth. Point number four. Stress is what you do to yourself. Adversity is what the circumstances of life do to you. Four. Stress is what you do to yourself. Adversity is what the circumstances of life do to you. You see, stress is a result of your own volitional decision. That has to do with how you respond to the outside pressure. Adversity is that outside pressure of circumstances of life. Point number five, adversity is inevitable. We all have suffering. You can't do anything about it. Man is born for trouble as his sparks fly upward. Adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Your decision. It depends on your positive volition whether or not you're going to avoid stress. If you apply doctrine, you can avoid stress. Point six. 
Stress in the soul always results in sin nature control of the soul. Stress in the soul always results in sin nature control in your life. When you decide to respond wrongly, negatively to that outside pressure, immediately you're trying to solve your problems yourself. Sin nature gains control and you begin to make bad decisions from a position of weakness. A position of weakness is defined as the sin nature being in control of your life. So stress then causes carnality, first of all, and if you continue backsliding, you can then go into moral or immoral degeneracy. I don't know if those are new terms to you, but there are a lot of people who get involved in moral degeneracy. The self-righteous Pharisees were involved in all kinds of morality, but they were as degenerate as they come. They were their father of the devil. Moral and immoral degeneracy, which completely destroys any capacity for life, love, and happiness. Stress will destroy any inner spiritual uh, strength that you have in your soul. It will just eat away at your soul from the inside like termites. And before long, whatever spiritual advance you've made, you'll begin to regret. You'll begin to go backwards and your spiritual life will, will be destroyed. Eventually, you'll just be an absolute failure in the spiritual life and maybe even be taken out under the sin unto death. Point number seven. Stress perpetuated in the soul means failure to glorify God and failure in the Christian life. Stress perpetuated in the soul means a failure to glorify God and a failure in the Christian life. Now, you won't lose your salvation. Once you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can never lose that. You don't do anything to earn your salvation, so you don't do anything to keep it. We are kept in the hand of God. Jesus says once you are in His hand, nothing can pluck you out of His hand. We are secure because God holds us secure. We are not secure because of what we do. Our salvation is never dependent on what we do. But when we cave into stress and sin nature control the life, and we stay there, then we can become a failure in the Christian life. We're going to stop there with the first eight points, and we'll pick this up. I have two or three more points, but it's going to take some time to develop those, so we'll get into that next Wednesday night. Bow our heads and close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word for the fact that we can understand why there is evil and suffering in the world and, and that we can make sense of it and we can know how we are to respond without caving in to the, uh, to the desires of the flesh, without caving in to arrogance, without caving in to self-absorption. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word that uh, informs us as to these things and how we can have perfect peace, inner tranquility and contentment no matter how... Uh, how the storms of life rage around us. So, Father, as we go throughout this week and as we face trials and tests, I pray that the Holy Spirit would remind us of these principles. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.